Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. Today, before we get to our teaching, just wanted to keep you updated on a few things happening in the life of our community. First of all, last week we told you about a new to South Bend City Church table happening on February 5th. Good news and bad news is that that filled up pretty quickly, and we intend to keep those small to mirror our table's experience that happens all throughout the life of our community. Needless to say, we were thrilled when that filled up fast and we had to actually close it, but we wanted to make sure that everyone that wanted the opportunity to come to the new to South Bend City Church table had the opportunity to do so. So we created a second date that will mirror the February one. It's on March 5th, a Sunday, right after the second gathering as well. So if you're in the South Bend area and want to be a part of that, or maybe you weren't able to make the February one and can make this one, please go to the show notes below to sign up. And for our long-distance community members, or for our local community members that find a digital space more accessible, we created a Zoom option as well. That'll happen on Monday, March 6th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you listen to this podcast from far away and are one of our long-distance community members, or if you live in the South Bend area and for whatever reason find this to be more accessible, you can sign up below in the show notes for the March 6th digital option. I also just wanted to remind you that if you consider South Bend City Church to be home, if you consider it to be your community, you can always give. It's through the generosity of all of those that call South Bend City Church home that allow us to do what we do, both in person and online. And so if you're looking to give, you can go to the show notes below, and there's a link to do that as well. All right, so today we're taking a quick break from our money series. The SBCC family has actually lost a couple of beloved members through death this week. And so many of us have lost something or someone that we cherished over the last few years. Beyond the personal stories of loss, we keep waking up to news like the headlines this weekend describing a mass shooting in Monterey Park, California. And so this weekend, we talked about loss and grief and hope. We want to include a trigger warning for this episode because Jason shares a story of how loss has deeply affected his life. And that story includes the topic of suicide. If you or someone you know are at risk of self-harm, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. If you are in a medical emergency or suicidal crisis and you cannot connect through 988, please call 911. As always, but especially today, we encourage you to process this teaching in community. Our team is also always available by reaching out to care at southbendcitychurch.com. All right, we're so thankful that you chose to join us today. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Good morning. I'm proud of you all. We put the word out that it was going to be cold today, and you came anyway. Look at you. Yeah, I'm very proud. Um, uh, we, last week, we kicked off a conversation about money, because it's the new year, new budgets, maybe, I don't know, new salaries. We thought we should talk about it a little bit. And uh, today is week two. Uh, next week, week three, Dr. Angela Logan is going to bring her philanthropic brilliance and her scholarship to tell us a little bit more about some of that. Very excited about that. Um, this week, uh, however, uh, I realized last night I'm not going to talk about money. Um, yesterday, we had a really hard funeral here. Um, we said goodbye to a beloved uh, member of our church, Heather, uh, a bright, brilliant 39-year-old woman um, who leaves behind a husband and young kids and many others who are hurting in her loss. 
And then Friday, while I was preparing for Heather's funeral, I got word of the death of another beloved member of our community, Kent Bontrager. Um, Kent and Becky have been with us from the beginning. Since the COVID years, it's been harder for them to be here. Um, and so then yesterday after the Heather's funeral, I was out in Middlebury with Becky and family. And I uh, got home and a couple of thoughts were on my mind. One, I just realized I couldn't really authentically preach the sermon that I had prepared. And it's like, look, a preacher shouldn't get up here to work out their own crap. That's not what this is for. Like, but, but you want to make sure there's not too much of a gap between where you are and the things that you're saying. You got to monitor that. And I just felt the gap pretty wide. Um, and then the other thing I know, and our team talks about this a lot, is that there are a lot of us who have faced extraordinary loss in the last few years. And we know that every season of life um, brings with it loss, but the last few years have included losses of, of many forms. And our team has been mindful that we should turn our attention to that uh, from time to time as a community so that we can walk through that together. And I think I just realized last night that uh, for me to have integrity today um, would be a different kind of sermon. So that's what you're getting today. I promise it won't be all sadness, though, because um, I think there's actually something deeply hopeful and what we can say to one another about that. Um, but that's what we're going to do. All right? Let's start here. Has anybody been here? Uh, on the screens, let me show you the 9-11 memorial. This is uh, in New York City where, of course, the Twin Towers used to stand. Anybody been there? Yeah. I remember the first time I was there a few years ago. This is the actual footprint of one of the two buildings that was destroyed in the 9-11 attacks. And the designer actually calls this, this kind of architectural water feature they call it the void. And if you read the literature that the architect has written to describe what they were doing here, they say we were trying to render absence visible. Like, how do you, how do you make something out of, of loss, of absence, of nothing? Because, of course, loss is to say there was something here, whether it was these two buildings with the thousands of lives that were in those buildings on the, days, on the, 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 the day that the plane attacked those buildings, or whether it's like in your own life where that loved one was or that dream was. Like, what you have is an absence. So how do you make something of that? And this was the designer's attempt to do that. And I've been there and stood at the edge of these absences, these voids, and kind of felt the, the cavernous emptiness there. And I think they really do their job. And um, it strikes me that this is actually um, a surprising act of public wisdom, that this is what we did. Uh, there at the 9-11 site where those buildings were attacked, I could imagine other impulses from us. Like, we could have just paved over it. Let's just pave over it and just like act like there's nothing here to see, right? And maybe that would seem strange for something like this, but you and I do that all the time with loss. Just pave over it, right? Or we could have just, like, on the actual footprint of those buildings, just built bigger, better, taller, shinier buildings, right? As if to say to our enemies, like, you can't hurt us. We'll just, we'll just build back better and stronger, right? Although if we did that, I would suspect we would be not just trying to send a message to our enemies, we would actually be trying to send a message to ourselves. Because loss rattles us, doesn't it? Like it raises all kinds of really unsettling questions. I think a lot of us um, are rattled by how vulnerable we feel when we lose something. And we, we can be going strong for days, weeks, or years, and then unexpectedly we lose something, whether it's a dream, or a hope, or a relationship, or, the, or an actual loved one who was here and then they're not here anymore. And no matter how strong you felt for how long, 
that loss happens and you feel the vulnerability of it. And we don't like that feeling of vulnerability. And so it may not be with public monuments that we do this, but so often in our lives, we just say we're gonna build back bigger, shinier, and stronger, right? And I think, again, that might be a message to the forces that have taken things from us, but I think it's also something that we do to, to comfort ourselves and tell ourselves that we're gonna be all right. But there, uh, on the site of the attacks of 9-11, we actually tapped into a stream of wisdom that is ancient and profound. Uh, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And when I said that, I think he also was speaking from the same tradition of ancient wisdom that knows that there is something important about building voids and naming losses. Uh, let me take you into that ancient tradition. Uh, specifically, I'm speaking of the book of Psalms. Uh, if you know the book of Psalms, it's a, it's a prayer book of 150 prayers uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament uh, that compiled over uh, centuries. They run the gamut of human experience. There was a North African bishop uh, roughly four centuries after Jesus, and he said these prayers, this book of the Psalms, it's actually a mirror, and it shows us all of ourselves. Or you can fast forward roughly 1,000 years after that North African bishop, there was a lawyer in Geneva over in Europe, a guy named John Calvin, who said the Psalms have within them an anatomy of the soul. That that central part of you that's hard to name or identify is laid out in the Psalms, like every part of it. Now what's interesting, if you consider this prayer book, these ancient prayers, a sort of anatomy of the soul, what's interesting then is you take note of the parts of that anatomy, right? Like what are the details on that anatomy? Uh, roughly 100 years ago, a German biblical scholar named Gunkel, which is one of my favorite names to drop at a dinner party, Gunkel, uh, Gunkel observed there's like roughly three kinds of psalms. Out of all 150, you basically have three categories of psalms. And by the way, this is one of those moments in biblical scholarship that really stands out because 100 years later, everybody pretty much still agrees with him. That doesn't happen very often, but he seems to have pretty much nailed it. There's roughly three kinds of psalms. He says there's psalms that he calls psalms of praise. These are the psalms that just come right out with it and say, God, you're great. Just like everything seems to fit together the way the world is meant to fit together. Everything is rightly ordered, and I know my place in that order, and everything's working roughly according to plan. Thank you, God, for all the kind of order that I feel in my life and in the world around me. So there's psalms of praise, lots of those in the psalms. And then he observes there's also psalms of thanksgiving. Now, psalms of thanksgiving and psalms of praise sound similar because they both say things like, God, you're great. But the difference is psalms of thanksgiving specifically say, God, you're great because everything didn't fit together for a while and then got put back together. Psalms of Thanksgiving are written after the world breaks, after we lose things, after people die or dreams die or arrangements die, and, and then there's a new ordering that gets put back together and you find yourself on the other side of all that loss and like there's new life. And then you say, God, you're great because I'm on the other side of all of that loss. Thank you for putting me back together, putting the world back together. And then there's a third kind of psalm. And these are psalms of lament. These are the prayers that bleed and protest and cry out. Now, if you look at the Psalms and you're trying to understand the anatomy of the soul by looking at the anatomy of the Psalms, and you take Google's categories and you say, okay, there's kind of three movements of the heart, three movements of the soul in our life in this world and our life with God. A couple of interesting features really stand out there. First of all, there's this. If you look at all the psalms that qualify as psalms of praise, and you kind of add them up, and then you look at all the psalms that qualify as psalms of thanksgiving, and you kind of add them up, and then all the psalms that qualify as psalms of lament, and you add them up, guess which pile's the biggest? 
lament. Yeah. Which is about as like unmodern, unwestern, un-American as you can get, right? Because we don't like to hang out there very long, right? Like even like, even, even like American religion doesn't like to hang out there very long. Most, mostly American religion is like put a smile on your face and pull yourself up and we can do this because God is for us. And by the way, I actually believe all those things. It's just I don't think they're the only things that are true, right? And in the, in the Psalms, in this anatomy of the soul, the biggest category, the thing that it traffics in the most actually is the movement of the soul that happens when we lose things, when the world falls apart or our lives fall apart or deaths happen. Um, and this is striking to me because like, if, imagine if you were like over here. Or, or let, let me show you examples of these prayers. These are just a few little snippets of Psalms of Lament. This is the psalmist saying, God, you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Or how about this one? God, you've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for this quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. Or how about this? We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Now, I don't know if you often pray with other people. But when, if you do, I'm curious when's the last time you prayed like that with other people. <laughs> Can you imagine like walking into your table group and like praying before dinner? And you're just like, oh, Lord, you've made us a haunt for jackals. You're probably going to have your friends kind of like call out a shrink for you, right? They're going to be like, hey, buddy, you okay? You want to talk about it? Right? These prayers that are the most frequent in our scriptures, in our sacred texts, are often least welcome in our, in our spiritual communities. Whether it's church or family or friend groups, we just, we're just not that comfortable with this stuff, right? So um, they're not that welcome, but, but not paying attention to this is a tragic way of not just being like unbiblical, but actually cutting us off from what I think is deep healing wisdom when the Psalms lead us into lament. I actually think there's deep healing wisdom here. I think there's hope in this exercise. And one of the reasons I think that is because of one of the features that you observe in Psalms of lament. So if you, if you went through the Psalms and you read every Psalm of lament and you looked for patterns, you would find one major pattern in the Psalms of Lament. It's simply this. Psalms of Lament typically begin by naming the loss, either actually or metaphorically. So the first thing they do is they say, God, this awful thing has happened. We are struggling. We're suffering. We've lost this loved one or this dream or this violence has happened in the world against us. So they, they name the thing that they're lamenting. And then they turn to praise. Praise. One of these famous psalms of lament begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that same psalm ends with the psalmist saying, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. From you comes the theme of my praise. Now, confession, when I was actually studying these psalms in grad school and I actually saw that pattern, I was so annoyed. Because when I saw psalms that begin with loss and lament, and just like seven verses later, they turn to praise God. I'm like, I've been around that. I don't like it. It started to feel like that kind of like sentimental greeting card, faux spirituality that sounds really good until you try to live inside it, and it doesn't work, right? You know, you know what I mean? Like the, just the kind of like, well, okay, you named the hard thing. Now let's praise God anyway. It's like that doesn't work all the time. And frankly, when we impose that on one another, we can create a lot of unhealth. Like that can turn into spiritual bypassing, right? 
that can just, that can just turn into the kind of like, yeah, we kind of gave lip service to the lost and we just moved on. So I didn't like that when I first read it, but then I remembered something else that I've learned about spiritual texts. And this is really important for all of y'all. If you're ever reading the Bible, this is like a one-on-one principle for reading sacred texts, and it's this. They often express in microcosm experiences and processes and ideas that are much larger and take much longer than is represented on the page. Just because it takes you five minutes to read from lament to praise in the psalm doesn't mean the psalm is saying that your heart should be able to move from lament to praise in five minutes. But it might be suggesting that there's an intrinsic connection between our willingness to lament, to mourn, to, to actually do the work of naming these losses, our, our, our willingness to lament, there might be a connection between our willingness to lament and our capacity for wonder or praise. There might actually be something connected between us being willing to say, being brave enough to say things are broken right now. We have lost something precious right now between that and our actual ability to discover healing and wholeness that would lead us to say things like, God, from you comes the theme of my praise. Uh, let me tell you about an experience of this. Uh, through this sorry. Um, uh, through the story of a friend of mine named Alex. Uh, Alex and I became really close friends in college, which is uh, quite a while now. Um, and then uh, coming out of college, I bought this shabby old house that many of you have heard too many stories of over in River Park. And uh, my theory was, let's just have a dorm together with 20 or 30 of my closest friends, you know, which apparently the city zoning director did not like. Uh, <laughs> Alex and I lived together in that house right after college. Uh, we, would, uh, we would go down to uh, the 7-Eleven right there uh, uh, at Ironwood and Mishawaka Ave, and we'd buy really cheap convenience store cigars, and we'd sit on the roof. And we'd smoke them and we'd like work out all that kind of adolescent angst that we were still channeling, you know. Uh, we'd go down to Fiddler's Hearth every Monday night for the years that we lived together and get a pint and just talk about the things that friends in their young 20s talk about, you know. Um, and Alex had discovered a friend who was effortlessly cool and unfailingly kind. Uh, while we were living together in that post-college season, I watched him searching for a cause or a mission that was big enough and beautiful enough to channel all the energies that he had, and eventually he found it. I remember very clearly the day that I came home to the house, and he asked me to come upstairs, and in his room on his computer, he had the website of an organization uh, loaded there. It was an organization who was dedicated to advocacy and awareness around the exploitation of child soldiers in Joseph Kony's war in Africa. And sure enough, before long, he packed up and he moved out to San Diego to join them. Uh, one of this organization's strengths was it would um, connect with artists, like musicians, rock stars, and they would become advocates for their mission. And so Alex became their chief outreach director for all of that. I would get dispatches uh, from Alex. He'd be like in backstage green rooms with my favorite rock stars. And it seemed like everywhere he went, everybody fell in love with that same effortless, cool, and unfailing kindness. Uh, one day, uh, years after we moved out to San Diego, I get this random package in the mail that I wasn't expecting, and I open it, and it's a book by a philosopher named Aristotle with a fancy name, which is Nicomachean Ethics. Don't worry about that. I'm, there's no note. I'm, it's just a book in the mail. 
uh, and I'm flipping through, and I realize there's one page that's been notated. There's a part in the book where the philosopher is talking about friendship. And he basically says there's different kinds of friendship. And there's kind of lesser forms of friendship where you're kind of using each other. And there's better forms of friendship where you, like, you believe in the good in each other. And, and you want the good in them to grow. And they want the good in you to grow. And so uh, when Aristotle's writing about that category of friendship, there was an asterisk next to the paragraph and a little bracket. And I figured out the book was from Alex. And that was it. And it was such a typically uh, cool way for Alex to do something very kind. Um, Eventually, Alex fell in love with a wonderful woman named Beth, and he moved to Nashville to be with her. And uh, he started asking me random questions about when I was going to be in Nashville next. And I finally figured out he was, uh, he was trying to put together a kind of quiet wedding for he and Beth, and he was trying to figure out when I would be there so I could officiate the wedding. And so uh, not long after that, I found myself in this beautiful lawn out in Nashville, Tennessee, under this massive old tree, uh, helping Beth and Alex make their vows to one another. A few months later, I'm at home, and I get a text message from Alex. It says, hola, amigo. Want to see the newest mini-member of the family? And it's the ultrasound uh, of the child that they had conceived that Beth was carrying. And a couple months after that, I got a text message from another friend. He said, hey, man, you got a minute? And I called him, and he asked if I was alone. Uh, and then he told me that Alex had died by suicide. And it just, like, bounced off of my head, you know. Like, it, it just didn't enter for a while. Uh, later that week, Matt Grable and I were headed out to New York City for some work, and so Grable and I, our executive pastor, were walking on the streets of Manhattan with one of the people that we're meeting with. And after a couple of days of numbness, the numbness went away, and the, uh, the grief just overwhelmed me. I excused myself and went back to the hotel room, and that was the beginning of a a very hard, long season of saying goodbye for me. Um, a couple of weeks later, Alex's funeral was in Nashville, and his wife asked me if I would deliver Alex's eulogy. And I remember the night before the funeral, um, laying on the couch in my buddy Seth's living room where I was going to be sleeping that night, and I had this yellow legal pad out in front of me, and it was blank. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what you say, you know. Um, I felt one of those waves of grief just completely overtake me. It felt as if some of the violence that Alex had committed against himself had also like struck me as collateral damage, right? I thought about his wife and the child that she was carrying and how her grief must be orders of magnitude greater than my own. I thought about Alex's parents. I thought about Alex's brothers. I thought about how alone Alex must have felt, even though he wasn't alone. Uh, I felt the the typical urge to do what I typically do in my job, which is to kind of explain and try to help create understanding. That's often a preacher's job, right? But I could also feel like how wildly inappropriate that would be. Like, like it just didn't seem like the thing to do the next day would be to explain this loss because I didn't have any explanations for it. And then I actually thought of that 9-11 memorial and I realized my job was very simple. I was just going to build a void. I was just going to um, tell Alex a story. So the next day in Nashville, I walked into this very large room, this 
um, unlikely congregation of like a thousand people who had flown in from all over the world to say goodbye to Alex and his wife Beth was on my arm and I walked their German shepherd down the aisle. She had been like a guardian angel to Beth during this time of grief. And then Beth and I sat in the front row with Coloco, their dog, um, watching, watching over Beth as we mourned that service. And then I got up and I remember turning around and looking at a room that was impossible because I've, I've seen a lot of anguished rooms and I've done a lot of funerals in my life and I've never spoken to a crowd quite like that. And I didn't try to explain anything. I just told him about Alex. I told him about our time in that, that old house in River Park and about the convenience store cigars. I told him about how Jack, my golden retriever, my 90-pound golden retriever, who was the house mascot at the time, how Jack, for some strange reason, had taken a peculiar liking to Alex, which meant that like in any room, no matter how many people were there, in any situation, Jack, the one person that Jack would make a beeline for was Alex, and every time he did it, he would do the thing that dogs do when they want to express dominance and affection. Yeah, I'm telling you, Jack would hump Alex, always Alex. I don't know why, always only Alex. But maybe Jack also just felt that Alex was so cool. I don't know. I told them about our nights at Fiddler's Hearth, working out all of our questions and wrestlings. I told them about how I had seen him fall in love with Beth and how he had already become a loving father to the child that she was carrying. I told them that people who watched Alex's life sometimes might have thought that he was sort of moving in a lot of different directions because he had a kind of frenetic energy to himself. But that what I had come to know in Alex was that he had a compass in his chest with two cardinal directions, one pointing toward beauty and one toward justice and that he was always just trying to work out how to follow that compass. A couple of weeks later, uh, the funeral was going to continue in San Diego. Um, that's where Alex had moved when he worked for that nonprofit. And much of the community that grew up around that nonprofit was still out there in San Diego. And I wasn't going to go. Uh, I didn't know a lot of people in San Diego. And also, the week after Alex's funeral, um, our family was on Lake Erie, uh, scattering the ashes of my grandfather. And between those two experiences, I just felt like I got nothing left. But then one of the people I had met in Nashville asked me if I would come to San Diego to deliver some of Alex's funeral and to speak on his behalf there. And so I booked my flights that night. And I'm so glad I did. Uh, one of the things that we did in San Diego was in honor of one of Alex's passions out there, which is surfing. And so there's a tradition in surf culture is that you, you do a paddle out, which is basically like you all grab surfboards and you paddle out on the ocean and you sort of cluster there. And so we, we did that. We, we grabbed surfboards, and very pregnant Beth somehow got in a kayak, and we kind of brought her out in the water, too. And we sort of gathered up. There were dozens of us out there on the ocean with the water kind of surging underneath it as if it was channeling some of the same waves of grief that we were all feeling. And in that kind of improvised flotilla, all kind of grasping each other on these boards out there on the ocean, we told stories about Alex, and we sang a couple of songs. And then we sort of spread out into a, a circle there, and um, Beth took the lei that she was wearing in honor of Alex, and she threw it out in the water in the middle of us, and we dug our hands into the ocean, and we splashed toward it in an act of love. And we told Alex that we missed him like hell. And I remember being out there on the water and thinking to myself, man, I can't believe I almost stayed home. But it didn't feel efficient to go out there. And frankly, I didn't really have the money for my airfare. And it just, there's all these ways that grieving felt inconvenient or like an indulgence, like to actually do the act of it, to actually invest in it, to put the time and the energy that it takes to show up and to lament and to create rituals of loss. 
And yet out there on the water, I remember thinking, I can't believe I almost stayed home because I could actually feel this hint, this strange hint that I couldn't describe that like something was slowly being put back together inside me. And then that night, gang, in San Diego, and this is the part of the story that I feel almost foolish describing because I don't know if I can communicate to you what it did in me. I fear that it will sound a little bit too hallmarky. Um, but the best way I can tell you is like that that night, um, I was alone on the beach, and the sky was set on fire. I've seen lots of beautiful sunsets. This was something else. It was more than like light banking off clouds and being colored by the atmosphere. It, it felt like it was sort of, sort of entering into my heart. I mean, it, it was electricity, um, and I found myself like, like kind of shouting and weeping. Because I feel like I would have exploded if I didn't. And, and here's the thing, I wasn't feeling sadness in that moment. It was actually like a depth of beauty and presence. It was a wholeness, it was a fullness, it was a joyfulness, it was a kind of beauty, it was a kind of power that was just like seizing my body and meeting me through what I saw out there in the atmosphere. And that beauty that I'm talking about Beauty is not even like a, a good enough word for it. The best word I can come up for what I experienced was glory. And that glory, it made me feel joyful. It made me feel a little bit put back together. But there's another word for what it drew out of me. And the, the best word I have for what it drew out of me is praise. And this is what brings me back to those strange psalms of lament that begin in loss and end in praise. So I have a theory now I'm going to share with you. It might be totally crazy. Um, it's a little bit theologically informed, so hopefully not. <laughs> Here's my theory. That those psalms were written at a time among people who, who had a better vision of the world than we have today in some ways. Because one of the things that we have lost in the modern world is what theologians call a sacramental imagination. There's a lot that we know today that they didn't know back then, a lot of ways that we're better off today than we were back then, but one of the things I think that those people knew that we have lost is that they, they understood that the world that we live in is itself a, a vessel that God has given God's self to, that God has invested God's own presence in. that the kind of everyday materials of the lives that we live are vessels and vehicles of, of God, that God has put God's own glory in the world. Dreams can be vessels of glory. Relationships can be vessels of glory. And certainly human beings. Scripture says it like this. This is, this is in the Psalms. Uh, slides here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God. Or how about this? Uh, speaking to God, you have made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Humanity and the, and the dreams that humans dream and the relationships that we build, these are vessels and vehicles, carriers of the glory of God. And it takes a certain kind of vision to see that. And in the modern world where we tend to reduce things to matter, 
and see them not as carriers of anything more than matter, right? It can be harder for us to see that. But there's this other line in the Psalms that has stood out to me for a very long time. It's simply this. The psalmist says, deep calls to deep. And I've come to think that maybe what that means is there is a depth within you that is able to sense the depth around you. There's a glory in you that's able to sense the glory around you. There's that part of you that's more than the parts of you. That soulless capacity within to know that within all of the material world that we live in, there's something more going on. And especially like in human lives and the people that we love and the relationships that we have, there's more at stake than matter, more at stake than bodies, even though bodies really matter. Deep calls to deep. The deep within senses the deep around. I think grief's strange power in us is that the soul is, is hungry for that glory and it delights in it when it finds it among others. Little reflections of God because the soul is meant to know God and to delight in God and God has delighted to put bits of God's self in all of us and in the world that we see around us. The soul craves that so that when we lose someone, when, when we lose anything that is deep and important, but especially when we lose someone, I think it's more than a psychological inconvenience that we are feeling. I think it's more than the unfortunate consequence of our attachments. I think our grief is actually the soul's way of saying there was a little something of the divine life that we hunger for that was in that person, in that place, in that dream, in that relationship. And so the mourning runs deeper than the brain, even though the brain's a part of it and the body's a part of it. I think it runs deeper than those things. But then, but then here's the trick. When we mourn, when we grieve, when we, lo- when we lament, when we actually turn toward rituals of loss, when we don't ignore it, when we don't pave over it, when we don't simply rebuild, but when we actually do the work of mourning and lamenting, what are we doing? We're actually strengthening our relationship with that part of ourself that senses the glory around us. We are strengthening our connection to that capacity within to know that God has given God's glory to this world and to the people that we love and to the things that we believe in most. And even if in strengthening that, that connection, we feel the pain of it, we also, in the very same moment, awaken to it again. The, the very act of mourning what we have lost is the, is the thing that helps us reconnect with our capacity to see what is never lost. Um, that as much as we lose the particularities of that glory in the lives that go away, you, you know the glory can't ever actually be diminished. Not long ago, mathematicians and scientists, this is very recent in the field of math and science, came to understand that the total energy in a system cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. But guys, did you know that the mystics have been saying that for thousands of years? Um, I've come to see that moment on the beach uh, in language that I really hesitate to use because it sounds a little too highfalutin and lofty, but this is the best language I have. I've come to see it as a kind of everyday mystical experience. Not the kind of mystical experience that you have when you climb the mountaintop of spirituality and holiness and prove yourself to God and make yourself special, but the, the kind of mysticism that meets us in the dark valley, where for, for a brief moment, you were given a glimpse that there's more going on here than we realized, right? It's not the only time I've had that experience. I realized there on the beach that years prior, after a very hard night in the NICU at Riley Hospital in Indianapolis, where um, I thought that my friends were going to say goodbye to their baby boy that night, I remember the next day driving from Indianapolis up to Grand Rapids. Were any of you at Marcel Church for that experimental Sunday gathering where we went up there and I preached? 
Yeah, a few of you. This is going way back, 2016 OG Sop and City Church days. I was driving from Indianapolis up to Grand Rapids the night before, and I wept for seven hours in the car. But it, but it wasn't the weeping of sadness. Little Theo actually survived that night. It was something else. And I remember looking out the car window thinking, like, the whole landscape had a luminescence to it that I wasn't familiar with. And in those moments, I've asked myself, did the environment change? Or for a moment, did my vision get better? And did I just see a little more of reality for a moment? Another metaphor that's helped me is to think of the soul as its own eye, that we have a way of seeing with the soul. And that in mourning, it gets dilated for a moment. You know, you go to the eye doctor, and they put dilation drops in your eyes, and they make you wear sunglasses. Why? Because <laughs> too much light's going to get in, right? <laughs> I have felt sometimes that good acts of mourning, that the actual process of naming our losses, like, dilates that soul, and a little bit more light gets in for a moment. Now, um, I don't know if you relate to anything I'm saying. I don't know if you've had a moment in the wake of grieving where you saw the brightness that you were surrounded by. Or maybe it's just been gray. I don't know. But I, I do know that this thing I'm hinting at, these little glimpses that I've received, there's, there is a particular moment in history where many people would say that they discovered everything I'm telling you about right now. And the moment I'm talking about is the resurrection of Jesus after his death. In the death of Jesus, it's as if everything in that moment was telling us that things of God can be destroyed. In the death of Jesus, it's as if everything about the system, everything about that violence, everything that happened in that moment, it's as if it was telling us that darkness is more powerful than light. In that moment, it's like all the glory that they thought that they felt in Jesus, that they saw in Jesus, all the life of God that they knew in Jesus, it's as if in that moment, it seems as if it's possible to destroy all those things. But of course, that's not the end of the story because three days later, Jesus is resurrected. And you can see the writers of the Gospels reaching for all the language they can find to try to describe the strangeness of this experience of seeing Jesus in a whole new light. They describe a resurrected body as a glorified body, that somehow the life of Jesus on the other side of that death is some, it's even more than what it was before. It's somehow expanded. There's a brightness in that experience that you can see. And, and what I've seen through 2,000 years of Christian history is that even people who maybe haven't had their own moments of brightness after loss have discovered that the resurrection moment is its own moment of brightness after loss. And it, it's that resurrection moment that has accompanied them in their dark moments. And I, like, I, don't have, um, I don't have the detail on my friend Alex's life today. But I believe very deeply that everything that I loved and believed in about him has not been destroyed but only transformed. And I believe it about Heather, and I believe it about Kent, and I believe it about anyone you have lost. I even believe it about the dreams and the relationships and the, the other things that we lose when the world is shaken around us. That if it's good, if it's of God, it could not be destroyed. It could only be transformed. And maybe we will find moments of mourning and lament to be the things that lead us into fresh apprehensions of the light. Uh, I'm almost done, but I'll, I'll say this too. This is not just about personal, private loss. This is also about public loss. 
This is about um, the things that are broken and the lives that we lose in the world that we have built. This is why the 9-11 memorial is a good thing. Because as, as a people, as a society, it's important for us to do acts of public amendment. This is why we hold candlelight vigils in the wake of mass shootings, like the one that I woke up reading about this morning in the news. Because these acts of lament are wise, because they're, they're moments when we, we, we actually name what has been lost and we build voids, not so that we wallow in grief, gang, but rather so that we can move through it and give ourselves the chance, if maybe only for a moment, to discover that anything good or of God cannot be destroyed, it can only be transformed. This is why saying the names of people whose lives have been lost in the unjust and discriminatory use of power is important. That's another act of building a void because those bodies are not dispensable. Those lives are not inconsequential. They matter. They are vessels of the divine. It's why we say their names. Because maybe if we say their names, we, we will become a society that's a little better at, at seeing the divine worth in the bodies that our system destroys. And if we see that worth, then maybe we will do something about it. Not because we just see the brokenness, but also because we see the wholeness. I don't have the detail on exactly what experience our loved ones are having who we've lost, like right now. But I, but I believe in my bones, I, I believe all the way through that everything good Everything from God cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. And that every once in a while, in the wake of our grief and loss, we are given glimpses of that wholeness. So before we sing a song together, I just want to say, friends, uh, even if you don't see a luminescence in the landscape, even if things don't brighten up around you immediately in the wake of loss, I want to say that when we turn toward mourning, when we, when we actually perform these rituals of grief, we are turning toward the deep within and making it maybe just a little more possible that we will sense the deep around us again. You don't have to quickly turn toward praise. You don't have to put a smile on your face if you don't feel it. I think the scriptures are hinting at something far more profound and promising which is that acts of mourning and lament are acts of faith. Crying out and protesting and saying, God, this makes no sense. These are acts of faith. And maybe when the time is right and when we are ready, we will also find that we've been restored to a capacity for praise. stand and join us as we sing this song maybe this is a song that you need to sit with today so if sitting is more comfortable for you and you just need someone to sing this over you we invite you to do so but if you're willing we would love for you to join us in this song this morning Oh. 
Nothing good or of God could ever be destroyed. May you trust that acts of lament, moments where we name our losses, are holy. If you need to, may you find the time this week to build a void, write a letter, give witness to what you've lost, rage about it or weep about it. And then when your soul is ready and the time is right, may you find yourself moved to praise. May we turn toward the deep within us that we may turn and revel in the deep around us that God has given. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you soon.